1: It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello,
2: folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show, and it's a great pleasure to be with you today. I am broadcasting from the mothership, somewhere is in the heart of New York City. Not going to say exactly where, just in the heart of New York City. So please don't come visit. <laughs> um. Lots to talk about today. Let me set this thing up. You can listen to us uh, on the internet, live stream us on the internet, LarryCudlowShow.com, LarryCudlowShow.com. You can hear us all across the country, around the world, throughout the solar system, and even the Milky Way. And I might add, during the week, we would love to have you join us on Fox Business. The name of the show is Cudlow. And it plays 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday. Please join us. If you can't get there at 4, why, well, you can just uh, text your favorite 9-year-old, and she will show you how to DVR the show. The show does play uh, repeat at 7 to 8, and for you early birds, the next morning at 5 a.m. So, plenty to do today. I want to start off with the border story. The, board, the Biden open border story, the Biden illegal immigration story, which has become an incredible embarrassment and danger to this country. And the thing I want to say, the point I want to make right at the beginning, as Republican and Democrat senators try to hammer out a deal this deal better be what I'm calling Trump tough. Trump tough on the border. Nothing else will suffice. I mean, in the last three years, there's no telling what the numbers are, but I would say 8 million is the low end, illegal immigrants, Biden illegal migrants, 8 million. Over 10,000 are coming across the border per day. 10,000 Per day, And we don't know who the heck they are. We have no idea. And yesterday the news came out that uh, the border uh, patrol people found 10 IEDs, 10 explosive devices, just slightly on the Mexican side of the border. And that is another warning about the need to close the border. This is a national security issue, among many other issues. Ten IEDs were found. Nobody knows who put them there. The good news is they didn't blow up. Nobody was injured, so far as we know. Whether it was the cartels, whether it was terrorists, we have no idea. But the fact remains... As um, negotiations continue, maybe even over the weekend, any policy changes must be Trump tough. That's how I'm putting it, to close the border. Because Mr. Trump, in the last two years of his administration, stopped these uh, illegals to a trickle. To a trickle. Now on the TV show, I interviewed actually last week, and then last night—no, not last night, Thursday night—Senator James Langford of Oklahoma, a very smart guy, good conservative. And we talked about some of the issues out there. You know, the possibility that Democrats would see the backlash. I mean, Democrats are for open borders. Joe Biden is for open borders. That has been their policy from day one. They want to overturn the Trump tough border closing, and they succeeded, much to the detriment of this country. And as you may know, folks, the House Republican House passed H.R. two, which is essentially a restoration of Donald Trump's border closing policies, included the wall. Remain in Mexico, some new formatting for asylum, Title 42. And I'm going to say that one reason these uh, border talks in the Senate have gone nowhere, there's nothing on paper. Mr. Langford said that. There's a lot of rumors, different news articles, but nothing on paper. And uh, Langford was quite right. If it ain't on paper, it doesn't exist. Just a lot of talk. Joe Biden has not been involved yet in these negotiations. Some of his senior staff, yes. And uh, this uh, dunderhead, um, Mayorkas, he's involved too. The uh, DHS secretary. Guy who never never tells truth about anything. No credibility whatsoever. But they've got to go through... And this isn't hard. They've got to go through the same Trump tough measures. I mean, my view is the Republicans should accept nothing less. First of all, the wall. The wall. Mr. Trump got through, I don't know, five, six, seven hundred million, uh, five, six, seven hundred miles of wall. He had about another five or six hundred to go, if I'm not mistaken. Those numbers may not be precise. Don't hold me to it, but I'm not going to be too far off. And then the Democrats stopped it. Literally, the equipment is left rusting next to the wall in a lot of places in Arizona and Texas, a waste of money. And and Langford told me, Senator Langford told me on the air the other night, he said, um, oh, it might have been Senator Ron Johnson last night. <laughs> Another great American. But the point is, um, money that was appropriated to build the wall has been used for climate change. Climate change. Huh? Really? I mean, you've got terrorists coming over the border. You have people from more or less... 150 countries around the world coming over the border, just literally walking through openings in the wall. Actually, the story, I don't know, in some of the papers yesterday and today, I saw it again in the New York Post this morning. You got Americans who went to Mexico legally and wanted to come back But uh, some of the uh, outposts, some of the openings have been so beaten up and degraded, it took them hours to get through. So they just circled around and found openings in the wall and walked through the wall, just like the illegals. I mean, how pathetic. These are Americans coming home. It's pathetic. But what's not pathetic is you've got Russians, you've got Chinese. You've got people from parts of Africa. You've got communists from Latin America. You've got Iranians. Iranians, really? In other words, you've got people coming over the border illegally who do not like the United States. But the Bidens have no idea who they are because they have no interest in stopping them. The left wing of the Democratic Party. And now it's starting to backfire. You've got uh, certain Democrats. It's the governor of Arizona, whatever her name is, a complete phony who beat Carrie Lake by a cat's whisker, a complete phony now coming out. Oh, help us, help us, give us money. Here in New York, it's a catastrophe. Eric Adams. This is a sanctuary city and a sanctuary state. Help us with money. Give us $12 billion dollars. You can get $50 billion and you wouldn't solve it. Complete phonies. Left-wing Democrats being hoisted on their own open border petard. Why hoisted? Because there's a voter backlash. Why is there a voter backlash? Well, now there's IEDs being found on the border. But that's just the most recent. You have national security issues. You have economic security issues. You have health security issues. Title 42 should be restored, maybe redefined. It's not all about COVID anymore, obviously. But there are a million other diseases that the illegals can bring into this country and spread it out throughout the interior of the country. Godaways, whatever, into these uh, blue state blue cities, sanctuary cities, with no law and order. You have national security, health security, economic security, real wages are going down because of all this cheap labor. And there is now a backlash. This has become probably the number two issue. After the economy and inflation, you're talking about the border. And the Democratic Party is still in favor of open borders. So is Joe Biden. So my point here at the opening, we'll talk about this later in the show. But my point is the GOP has to stand Trump tough. Do not sign on to this national security funding bill. I mean, we can talk about Ukraine. I don't want to leave Ukraine in the lurch but I'd like to see an exit strategy in Ukraine, what is essentially a stalemate. There's Israel money in there. Israel got a chunk of money, so they're not desperate for this money. But there's $14 billion for Israel. We should do what we can to get that done. There's money, inadequate money for Taiwan. And it's uh, but tied to the border. But the border part, in my judgment is as or more important than any other part of this uh, omnibus foreign aid spending bill. Let's talk about Remain in Mexico. I know uh, it's a hard thing to do. Uh, I When I was in the Trump White House, I was part of this. The Mexicans did not want a Remain in Mexico policy. They did not want that. So President Trump, who did want it, this is to keep people in a hospitable country while their asylum issues and other issues are adjudicated. But don't let them out in here. No catch and release. It's an essentially catch and deport. Remain in Mexico. The Mexicans uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was President Nieto and then it was Obrador. And Trump said, okay, you don't want this policy? Then we are going to double and triple the tariffs on your automobiles and your manufactured goods. Mexico is our largest trading partner. It would destroy their economy. Well, guess what? They heard Trump. They knew he meant business. They folded, and we had remained in Mexico, which was a very successful policy. Republicans should stand tough. Change Title 42 to fit other health issues. And of course, build the wall, finish the wall, and then find some money to give to the border cops, the good people that are trying to do their job. They're overwhelmed by the numbers. At least 8 million have come across illegally under Biden. It could be 10, 12 million. Who the hell knows? The old number in the United States, 11 million illegals in the United States, that number is probably 35 million. It could be as much as 50 million. Who knows? This has to stop. Right now, during Christmas negotiations, the House has H.R. 2. It's a fine piece of legislation. The Senate has nothing. Nothing on paper is what uh, Senator Jim Langford said. Good man. Good man, Langford. He knows he's telling the truth. Whatever negotiating they're going to do, this guy, Chris Murphy, uh, big lefty from Connecticut, uh, and Maiorcas, Biden himself hadn't even gotten involved. Yeah, naturally. So this is a big issue. The GOP needs to be Trump tough on any border solution. And if there's no Trump tough, the wall, remain in Mexico, Title 42, tougher asylum, more money for cops, not to facilitate, by the way, not to facilitate, but to stop illegal entries. Then don't make the bill. Don't agree to any more money in foreign aid. Be tough. Let's worry about the American border for a change. Law and order, economic growth, health issues, national security. Close the border. Trump tough. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back.
3: This
1: is the Larry Kudlow Show. Now back to the Larry Kudlow Show.
2: Welcome back, folks. Just a couple minutes. uh, Art Laffer is going to be here. The great Art Laffer, the best economist in the world. Uh, He's going to be here at the half hour to talk about this uh, wonderful stock market rally which I might add didn't have a thing to do with Joe Biden. I mean, he may take credit for it. It not have a thing to do with Joe Biden's bad interest rates. But in any event, I just want to take a whack. We'll come back to it later in the show. I want to take a whack. Harvard hates America. All right. This is another important thing. Harvard hates America. You know, you saw Elise Stefanik, one of the Republican leaders in the house, tear apart some of these presidents from Harvard and Penn and MIT. This Claudine, Gay, she's the worst of them. Why the Harvards haven't fired her already is beyond me. Not only has she failed uh, to stop the wave of anti-Semitism on her campus, not only could she not answer a simple question uh, before the House put to her by Elise Stefanik uh, and acknowledge that all these charges about Israeli genocide uh, are just complete slander, and hate speech, and bullying. But it turns out her academic credentials were zil. She was involved in plagiarism for her Ph.D. thesis and other things she wrote, plagiarism. She took the content from other people and put it on her uh, articles, and then Harvard discovered it, Experts took a look at it. Harvard discovered it. It was true. And they allowed her to make changes. She should have been fired. A student or a teacher, professor, accused and uh, convicted of plagiarism is automatically thrown out of the college. But she was allowed to stay. And then it turns out from the New York Post that the Harvards uh, put together a legal team to cover up the plagiarism. Three strikes and you're out anti-Semitism, plagiarism, cover-up. This is a woman who's there because of left-wing social policies. DEI, diversity, uh, diversity, what's the E? Equity, thank you. Diversity, equity, and inclusion. DEI, affirmative action, in effect. And other left-wing social policies, and she should be fired. And Harvard and these rich schools should start paying taxes. If they're going to hate America, let's make it more costly for them to hate America. Maybe they'll change, but at least they're not going to get a free lunch anymore. We're going to come back to this Harvard hates America and why not tax them later in the show. I'm Kudlow, Art Laffer on the other side of the break.
1: Wall Street to the White House. This is the Larry Kudlow Show.
2: Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. We're going to bring in my very, very dear friend, the great Art Laffer, chairman and chief economist for Laffer Associates and the winner of the Presidential Medal of Freedom and a great new book out this year called Taxes Have Consequences, an Income Tax History of the United States. Arthur, uh, good morning. Thank you. Good
4: morning, Larry. How are you?
2: Good. I just—we're uh, not going to keep you too long, because I know you're heading down to back home to Nashville. But you know, you had this massive stock market rally. The Dow's up a thousand points this week—a new high. Uh, it kind of changes and the market's been rallying for several weeks, and market interest rates—not the Fed policy, but market rates—have been coming down. And I know that you have a long history with your company of advising on investments, and I just wanted to pick your brain for a second on a Saturday morning. What are you? What's going on here, and is this sustainable? Well, I, I don't know
4: if it's sustainable. Uh, there, there is nothing here that tells me, Larry, that the Fed understands exactly what it's doing and that it's done something like Volcker did, which is really bring inflation under control for the long run. Hmm. I just don't think that's true. Uh, but what I do think is the reduction of inflation, uh, inflation is down now prices are still going up but inflation is way down mm-hmm. and interest rates are very sensitive to expected inflation and uh the reduction of inflation has dropped those rates down and the fed is uh has not uh raised rates because market rates are coming down yeah and that's very good for high-tech stocks for long low-profit stocks it's really good for the market
2: yeah i mean it's interesting that you're right the, the the market rates. I'm going to use the 10-year Treasury bond as yeah, one, that's what I use. One yeah. of the bellwethers. So that thing's gone from over five percent to slightly under four. It's about 390. Yep. Uh, that led the Fed. I mean, it's not like the Fed has cut their target rate. It's the market that moved. Exactly.
4: Exactly. And when you think of a move of one percent in the 10-year, that that's that's not just one percent. It's a it's a twenty percent drop in the rate mm. which is really has a huge effect on the on, on the capitalized profits of the companies which really should shock it should send stock prices high and and it did uh, i don't think it's over yet either to be honest with you i think we're going to get a continued run on this for a while but that's just me and uh, you know my advice is worth what people pay for it <laughs> nothing
2: <laughs> well, i think they do pay for it but i think it's just an interesting point you just made um that's the the that affects the present value of future cash flows, as exactly. you say capitalized profits in other words, lower interest rate's a good thing uh for companies It's a good thing yeah. for everybody it's a good thing I mean mortgage rates have come down. I got the thirty year mortgage rate at seven twenty one um that thing was a little bit over eight percent a month ago and this again yep. and all how was this- was
4: it back a year ago, Larry? I mean, it was way down there. I think there were times that the mortgage rate was, what, 4%, 45 something like that.
2: When Trump left office, it was about 2.5%. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty low. That was low. That was good for housing. It, and, you know, and housing has done well even with
4: uh, the rise in interest rates over the last three years, at least in some places where property taxes are low and under control. And, and you know, that's, uh, that's a very big good thing for the economy as well.
2: You know, I always say – Uh, Profits are the mother's milk of stocks. But actually, I should amend that. It's not quite as catchy. Capitalized profits are the mother's milk of stocks. That's exactly correct. (laughs) It is
4: exactly correct. And and it is the capitalization rate as well as the profits rate as well as the tax rate on those profits. All three of those are critical. And, uh, you know, what you did with Trump there on getting the tax rate down on profits, that's hugely plus. And with the interest rates falling now, that's that's a double whammy.
2: What is that? Can you uh, surmise anything about the future economy from this move in stocks and interest rates?
4: Well, not really. I mean, what, what you really, what you really, uh, what you really want to look at is uh, uh, what you really want to look at is the after-tax profits, and that could be forecas- forecasting an increase in profits as well. But I don't think so. I think this is just the capitalization factor So uh, is where I
2: come out on it. I mean, Joe Biden's uh, administration has not stopped spending. We're going to run a $2 trillion deficit this year.
4: Uh, True. And that's really bad for the economy. It's bad for that. We've already got, uh, you know, illusory profits on capital gains, Larry, that are Mm -hmm. really quite substantial. I think since Biden's been in office, the price level has risen 20 percent or so. Mm Mm-hmm which means that you know, any profits up to 20% are illusory, but you still have to pay taxes on them. Capital gains, I mean, you have to pay tax on them. Companies, when they, when they want to replace their capital expenditures, you know, we're having the depreciation. You don't have the 100% write-offs that you had in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. You now have depreciation schedules, which is negative for companies, and then you have under-depreciation, Uh, for replacement costs, which is also a very serious thing going on. So none of these work in favor of uh, a good economy going forward. I mean, they just don't. And I don't know when the expiration of some of the provisions of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act occur. But, you know, we've had increases in taxes already. The spending goes on. And the Fed has not, does not understand inflation and how to operate. It's a good period right now for them, but I don't think for the long run. And regulations are at their all-time high, Larry. Uh, so I have a hard time thinking the economy is about to boom. It just, it just doesn't compute in my way of thinking.
2: I'm surprised. I mean, well, I shouldn't be surprised. The Fed is like panicking. It's now they're, for some reason, uh, they, they, they think they're fighting recession and deflation, and I don't think that's. Now I think there has been some deflation in commodity prices in the there last been, couple yes. of months, and and that's a good thing because they've gone up way too much. Uh, but I don't think the evidence of recession is there. And I, you know, I don't I don't think the Fed is operating correctly. And now you see some splits. Art. I don't know if you saw the New York Fed President John Williams, whom I know, the Atlanta Fed President uh, chap named Bostic, whom I do not know. They came out and said, well, wait a minute, slow down. We're not really talking about cutting our target for the Fed funds rate for quite some time. But the market is building in seven rate cuts. So I, I, know. I don't know. It's a very odd situation. Market's supposed to be efficient. I'm not sure in this case it's very efficient. Well,
4: I would be very surprised if seven rate cuts. I mean, they may <laughs> be building it in there. But, you know, that we're going to have new information coming along. And that building is very weakly based on – what we see right now, not what we're going to see six months ago from now or whatever. But when I look at this economy, I see I see the commodity price deflation, Larry, mm-hmm. that you're talking about as being a weakness in the world economy. That yeah. that's what I see. Right. And I see that's why the dollar is strong is because not not the dollar is strong, mm-hmm. but that the rest of the world's currencies are weak. Mm-hmm. It, it, that's where I'm coming out. I see a very serious long term problem in China, that the policies of Xi. Mm-hmm have gone in the wrong direction, and they're undoing the, the, the liberation that they had and supply-side economics they had. I mean, I was in China in 1970. I was in the first trip before Kissinger. In fact, I think it was the first American trip. to. And what they did since then with liberation and tax cuts and free trade was amazing, and now they're reversing that. And it's been the last two or three years that that's happened. So I think the fall in commodity prices is really a softening of the world economy,
2: is, is the way I see it, Larry. It's a great point. And you know what? China, uh, which could drive commodities or drive the world economy, China is not going to recover like it used to. It's not no, going to happen. Not. For it's the reasons not. you just said, they've squelched the freedom in the economy. They, it's, totally. it's all now central planning again, right? It's, the market. Exactly, exactly. I mean, that's yep. a killer. Yeah,
4: they're going to be the Japan of the future. I mean, there used to be a country that had a market cap equal to the U.S. market cap back in 1989, Larry, was Japan. Look at them now with their state-run operations, their huge deficits, their control of the economy. Mm. Japan is disappearing from the face of the earth. Mm. And China is now following that model. I I think a lot of our long-term concerns about China will fade as the Chinese economy and the Chinese industrial might disappears. Mm. I think they will not be the threat that we feel they are today.
2: As you look around the world,
4: who's doing it right, do you think? No one. I mean, even Chile, Larry. Mm. Uh, Now, I see a little bit. uh, I see a glimmer of hope in Argentina again. But Argentina has always been flaky on policies going one way and then the other way. Uh, I like where they're going right now. We see some of the elections in some of the other countries are looking good. Uh, But, you know, uh, the real hope I have in this world right now stems from the states. The states are still experimenting uh, massively on good economics and bad economics. And I think the red states are really outperforming the blue states. Those states that introduced the income tax since 1960 are just crashing before our very eyes. Mm. And those states with no income tax are just cleaning house. And uh, it, it's really exciting. I think that's where the, the hope rests in the U.S. is the battleground, the the experimentation on the states, not internationally. Fabulous.
2: That's where the growth is. That's where the tax cuts are. That's where that's where uh, right to work laws are. The red states are moving. That's the model. We're doing
4: much more. I mean, even the red states are becoming redder and I don't mean redder because of Republican. I mean, red, they're cutting tax rates. They're looking at trying to do this. I mean, we've got an initiative in Tennessee uh, to put limits on the property tax and cut it back. And it's going to go through. They've got one in Colorado, which is going to be a 4% increase Mm. uh, is the max allowed. So You know, there are a lot of great initiatives going on in the states to make them even better. And I'm very excited by that. And some of the states like Michigan and and, uh, Ohio and uh, uh, Illinois and uh, Connecticut and New Jersey are going the wrong way. So I think we've got a good battleground going on there uh, and good economics. And I think that's where the future lies.
2: The great Art Laffer, folks, the great Art Laffer, the father of supply side economics to return to classical thinking. You heard it. Arthur, thank you. You're wonderful to give us your time. Appreciate it. Be safe. My pleasure, Larry. Thank you for having me and have a great show. Talk next week. okay, folks, we're going to take a quick break. And uh, on the other side of the break, we're going to talk a little bit. Some very positive developments from Donald Trump. His court case in Washington is probably going to be put off for quite some time. Pam Bondi former Florida attorney general and Trump legal advisor now will be with us to try to walk us through it. I'm Kudlow. Stick around. Much more to come.
1: Larry Kudlow, from Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show.
2: Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow, and um, Donald Trump's uh, legal machinations may have may have caught a break this past week because of the stupidity of uh, of. Uh, Special Counsel Jack Smith, I say maybe because I'm not a lawyer, but we're going to bring in a brilliant lawyer, Ms. Pam Bondi, former Florida Attorney General, and now co-chair of the America First Policy Institute's Law and Justice Center. Uh, Ms. Bondi worked uh, as a consultant for President Trump and some of his impeachment issues, and she is also a very dear friend of mine. Pam, thanks for doing this
5: um by the way holidays merry christmas uh, larry oh
2: you too mary happy holy and merry um just in 10 seconds because i'm a dog person how's your dog
5: oh thank you i had to take her she's 14 she went to the vet this morning and she's doing awesome and we have a a seven-year-old rescue too and they're both amazing thank you though all
2: right yeah we're dog people so pam um Lead editorial in today's Wall Street Journal, they're lambasting. The journal editorial page doesn't like Trump. So they're blasting Jack Smith. But Jack Smith made a big mistake here. I think that's what you were saying to us last night on TV, on our TV show. And I just wanted, if you could quickly walk through, what is all this about?
5: Sure. And I have not read the editorial yet because I've been sitting in the vet with my dog. But... um... But I I can tell you, I I can bet what they're talking about. So Jack Smith's only goal is to get President Trump sitting in a courtroom on Super Tuesday. Mm -hmm. He wants to rush this to trial. When I heard him get up there, Larry, I prosecuted for 18 years before I was attorney general. Mm. And when I heard a prosecutor get up there and say, we want a speedy trial, we demand a speedy trial, that right is not Jack Smith. That right is the defendant Mm. who is charged with very serious criminal charges. So um, I've never heard anything like this. It's not even veiled. He is just out there blatantly saying he wants to get the president to trial as soon as possible because he wants him to be in trial or behind bars. Now, remember what Jack Smith, Larry, did to Governor Bob McDonald. Mm. He stretched the limits of the law there. Mm. He got him convicted in a D.C. court. But two years later, the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court unanimously overturned that. Mm. But, of course, Governor McDonald spent millions of dollars, two years suffering over all this. So all he cares about is getting that initial win and keeping President Trump in court. So here's what he's done. He's asked for an expedited briefing to the u.s supreme court on the issue of executive privilege and there there are a lot of things president trump has going for him um executive privilege you you like the double jeopardy issue i'm not so sure that's strong but also a first amendment issue Mm -hmm. you know of why they can't prosecute him but jack smith has said that this is a position that the supreme court must hear they must listen to this so The Supreme Court ordered expedited briefing, and a lot of people got that wrong initially because they thought, oh, they're going to hear it next week. It's expedited. No, only the initial briefing. So the likelihood that the court will take an expedited hearing is very slim because this is so complicated, so complex. They're going to want to hear from the D.C. Circuit. They're going to have to be extensive briefings and much more work. So... They now have jurisdiction of this case. It's no longer in the trial court.
2: Oh. Wait, the Supremes have the, Supremes have the play.
5: They have it right now.
2: Wow. Exactly. Oh, I see. I see. And, right. and
5: that's where Larry, I think Jackson has shot himself in the foot mm. by taking such a strong position that the Supreme Court must hear this issue, mm. but he wanted it heard fast. And I just can't imagine something of such significance, especially involving a former president and potentially a future president, Hmm. being heard that fast by the Supreme Court.
2: I always thought, um, I mean, I know John Roberts a little bit down through the years. I mean, I happen to like the guy, but I'm not an expert like you. But I don't think he wants to drag the Supreme Court into the middle of a presidential election and replicate something like what happened in 2000 when the Supremes had to decide the election. I just don't think John Roberts wants to do that. And I'm going to guess, you know these justices better than I do, uh, but I'm going to guess even the Trump-appointed justices don't want to do that. It's not a good thing for the court. So I'm just saying, wouldn't they want to just push this way until way after the election, like sometime in 2025? Let let the voters decide the election and then the Supremes can weigh in legally?
5: Well, yeah. And, and and again, this is a really complex issue that Jack Smith asked them to take up. I mean, it, it involves lots of different issues, not just executive amendment, a, a immunity, a privilege, but also the First Amendment. And so they can't just do it expedited. I mean, again, this is this, in my opinion, would be influencing a presidential election. Mm. So. It's very complicated. And now that they have jurisdiction, I think they're going to hold on to it. And they're going to want extensive briefings.
2: So on the First so, Amendment, Pam, just on that, you're talking yeah. about free speech. Donald, Absolutely. Donald Trump, as a, as a president and or as a citizen, has the right to give his opinion. If he thinks there was something wrong with the election, he, he has the right to say so. And or he has a right to go and give his speech. Which, by the way, there's no evidence incited anything. I mean, I wasn't there, but I read the speech carefully. I'm sure you have, too. And he talked about being peaceful and so forth. But he has a right to say, to speak his mind. The Biden, Merrick Garland, Jack Smith Justice Department is trying to say, no, you don't. You can't speak your mind. That's nonsense.
5: Yeah, It is. It is. I, I personally think the First Amendment argument is the strongest argument for the, the, the points that you just laid out, oh. you know, but but also executive privilege. He was president of the United States mm-hmm. during and around the time this happened. Mm-hmm. And executive privilege is very important for all presidents to have. And, and, you know, they're trying to throw that out the window. You know, the, the double jeopardy argument that we keep hearing is that, that of course, they've tried to impeach him in, the, in Congress. And that failed. So Jeopardy attaches. I think that's probably a weaker argument because mm-hmm. the rules of evidence don't apply. It's not a true criminal court. Right. Um, but, but you know, that's still an argument that they can make.
2: Andy McCarthy beat me back on that the other night. He, he oh, tried to convince me that that was wrong. Um, yeah. I won't tell you who put it on to me, but um, <laughs> but McCarthy beat me back. He's a pretty smart guy. Uh, he's not a Trump guy, but he's a smart guy, so it's yeah. okay.
5: And he's very smart,
2: and you're a smart person, so I get it. I'm going to back off that. I'm into I'm into the First Amendment and executive immunity now. How's that? That's right. And I'm going to stick right. with those two. That's right, but my friend. That's the, right. That's The whole thing here should should and will be pushed back. Will the Florida, will the classified documents case, can that be pushed back as well?
5: Well, right now, that's going through the court system as it should, and and frankly, it's because they have a fair judge. Mm -hmm. They have an honest judge down in South Florida, Mm -hmm. Uh, and she's the one that caught on to the fact that this judge, that that they were running two grand juries. I mean, it was crazy. They were running one in D.C., one in Florida. I've never seen anything like this in my life. All of these cases that we're talking about, every single one of them, should take... Two to three years to go to trial. Any case this complex should. All right.
2: Pam Bondi. It's
5: a concerted effort to
2: to get Trump. Pam Bondi, so good. So good. Now, co chair, America First Policy Institute Law and Justice Center, former Florida AG, dear friend, Pam Bondi. Thank you so much, folks. Quick break. On the other side of the break, Harvard hates America and they ought to pay for it.
1: It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome
2: back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. And I want to go back and revisit this business about Harvard hates America and the Ivy League hates America. All these elite colleges. Anti-Semitism. At Harvard, plagiarism. The president, uh, Claudine Gay accused of plagiarism, acknowledged plagiarism. Then there was a cover-up of the plagiarism charge. Basically, what you got here is um, a very bad story, a very bad story. And what makes it worse is that Harvard and these big schools don't pay any taxes on their outsized endowments. They're not like you and me. So we may not be able to stop them, uh, from their left-wing social policies. But at least we can stop their free lunch. And to talk about that is the great Grover Norquist, founder and president of Americans for tax reform. Grover, thank you for coming on. We'll have a little more time than we did on the, on the TV show, although you got it out pretty good. But the point is uh, their total tax, let's go to the bottom line, and their total tax uh, – is 1.4% on their endowment. Now, they don't pay taxes on dividends. They don't pay taxes on capital gains the way ordinary people do. But 1.4%, all right? The tax rate for uh, successful earners is 37%. So there's something wrong with this system. Why should we reward them with this zero-tax policy? May not change them, but at least we can make it more expensive for them to keep hating America. Now, Grover, you went to Harvard. I went to Princeton. So we're arguing against our own alma maters. But that's the way life is sometimes. Anyway, how can we fix this?
6: Well, there's several ways to come at it. One is, um, you know, Harvard uh, gets six, seven hundred million dollars a year in money from the federal government. Okay, Mm. so you can either say, you know, why aren't we taxing them? Well you could say, why are we showering them with cash? Uh, the federal government doesn't shower with cash small businesses, and yet they get taxed um, at uh, you know up to thirty seven percent. That you know for a lot less money than Harvard makes. They made two billion dollars uh, yes. on their uh, uh, endowments. They got a billion dollars from students, and I don't know six seven hundred million uh, from uh, our friends in the federal government and some from the state government. And uh, they don't pay property taxes to the city. <laughs> they don't oh. pay income taxes. So mm. I, guess I would like to start by saying, let's cut off the flow of cash from the government mm. that goes to them. And by the way, Title Six of the uh, 1964 Civil Rights Act says you can't get money if you are engaged uh, in Uh, Bigotry against any ethnic group and since then that's been revisited and anti-semitism certainly counts and is uh, included. So any school that is found to have a unhealthy uh, environment for uh, Christians, Jews, uh, blacks, you know, you fill fill in the blank, all the various groups. And we have seen some very unhealthy uh, treatment of the the Jewish community and Jewish students. Uh, in at Harvard and the Ivy uh, Leagues. That's a prima facie case for cutting off federal funds. Mm. So before you get into, should we tax, which is my least favorite um, project, you uh, should say, why are we sending cash for that? Uh, but there is a question at some point, it's not just causes, why do we tax quote unquote for profits as opposed to not for profits? Mm. Uh, when you look at the people who run not-for-profits oh i don't know like harvard uh, or national geographic these people are making hundreds of thousands of dollars much more money than a small businessman does who ends up paying the top possible rate okay so it's not like not-for-profits don't make a lot of money both for the individuals who run them uh, outrageous uh, amounts of 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 money in terms of salaries in terms of what they have to do uh, and uh, a great, you know, so why, why don't we tax quote-unquote nonprofits what, what, what is the, 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 as, as opposed to everything else? I, I want everybody's taxes to be down. But to exempt one, we've created an entire industry that says, oh, who lobbies for high taxes on individuals and businesses – Ooh, people who run not-for-profits and don't pay those taxes. Mm. Perhaps if they were taxing themselves at the National Geographic or any of these, you know, some big museum or the opera or these places that make a lot of money and people get paid a lot of money to run it, much more than, you know, smaller businessmen and women, even large businessmen don't make as much cash as some of these places. Very lucrative to be, quote-unquote, not-for-profit. Doesn't mean you can't make a lot of cash.
2: So think about this. Uh, Elise Stefanik, who's part of the leadership in the House, wants to hold additional hearings and uh, investigate these colleges. So this would be a very important place to start. And your Title VI example would be a very important hook uh, to let's have a discussion. First of all, we'd like to cut federal spending in any event. And second of all, we'd especially like to cut their federal spending because of their bad behavior. And third of all, you're saying there's a law against what they're doing in the first place. So they should, you know, uphold the law, and penalize them.
6: Right. And they thought they were doing that to deal with the University of Mississippi. OK, when yep. they passed it, mm. turns out that Harvard has the problem.
2: What was it? I saw one group uh, that ranks the free speeches. Free speech um, at universities. Yep,
6: my alma mater did worse. We're number one. We're number one
2: in, in being bad. Harvard was the worst one. And by the way, these all these other colleges, as it turns out, well, that's because they don't let conservative speakers and things like that.
6: Oh, when I was it I went to Harvard. Uh, when I was there, there was this the Spartacus Youth League, which is a communist group, um, had posters "Free Speech for Whom," uh, hmm. and these were rallies against free speech remember the free speech movement out mm-hmm. in Berkeley mm-hmm. this, this Harvard had rallies against free speech mm. uh, a while ago this is this is not even new they don't like competing thoughts they've mm. given up on winning arguments now they just want to be bullies and the, the, one of the theories of why they were going to get you know money from the federal government or why they get you know they're non- taxable is that they're supposed to be areas that – that are different than the rest of the world and better than the rest of the world and just free and open. And they were supposed to have all of these wonderful that they don't have anymore, if they ever did. Um, so they're getting all this beneficial treatment uh, and they're not, they're not what people think they're getting when they go there. They're not places where people do deep thinking. It's where people get almost indoctrinated. Um mm-hmm. And told and told what told what to think, told what's right, what's wrong. Um, I think we ought to look at reducing the funding. But then there's this other thing. They get all these regulations, all that DEI, DIE thing, D E I, diversity equity something, Inclusion. and th- yeah. they put these little po- political commissars that they put into every department. Mm. I was looking at some numbers, thirty or forty in every university, right? You know how in those movies about the Soviet Union, they've always got a political officer in every submarine and every you know military unit to make sure everybody's politically correct well that's what the dei officers is everybody politically correct in this department in that Mm. department first of all the federal government mandates it then the schools spend a lot of money on it then they raise tuition i mean one of the things they could do is drop some of the regulations too i hate to yell at a school for doing what the federal government mandates them to do with Mm. this dei kind of stuff how much is it that maybe some of these universities wouldn't be mm. so crazy mm. if the federal government wasn't sitting behind them with a gun saying, you must hire people to go push people around like that. You must hire people who stifle free speech. That's the federal government telling them to do it. Now they it's going to turn around and say, you're jerks for doing it. They should be, I mean, the, the federal government is so involved in messing around with universe, subsidizing them taxing them, mandating who they hire, how they hire, telling them what kind of students to hire, right? You know, they used to have like racial quotas and stuff or supposedly that's going away. They would tell you to to racially discriminate and then they'd also tell you it's not legally racially discriminate. The federal government is just way too complicated into this stuff. I guess I'd like to take the federal government out of these schools and take another look at them and see how much stupid continues once the feds leave.
2: Well, you know, That's a good point. I don't know that you could solve the problem, but at least you can make it more costly. I mean, they're getting a free lunch plus spending, and uh, they should be – whatever the tax rate is. I mean, you know, if if you become the Treasury Secretary someday and you get the tax rate down to 15 percent, fine. But Harvard wouldn't even pay the 15 percent, and they should pay the same tax rate. And as you say, they should – You know, nonprofits should pay the same tax rate as as profitable small businesses. So there's a certain common sense to this as well as the social element.
6: All right, and if Harvard's paying 1.4 percent, I think that's a good uh, target to get the rest of us down to. <laughs>
2: yeah, it's a dream on! I love that, that
6: might be a little bit. That might be a little bit much, but for, <laughs> as a negotiating tactic, we could start with going to
2: 1.4. <laughs> yeah, terrific. Folks, it's Grover Norquist, founder and president of Americans for Tax Reform, and um, brilliant Harvard graduate. <laughs> Thank you, Grover. We appreciate it very much. We'll talk Larry, soon. thank you. All right, anytime. Folks, we're going to take a uh, quick break. And on the other side, we're going to have a little more discussion of uh, Donald Trump's legal situations from uh, Will Scharf, federal prosecutor and actually candidate for attorney general in the great state of Missouri. Uh, I'm Kudlow. Harvard hates America. Let's let them pay you more for hating America. We'll be right back.
1: This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Now back to the Larry Kudlow Show.
2: Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. I hate to do it, but more legal stuff today. Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani. It's a great uh, thing. Rudy Giuliani was hit with $148 million dollars in damages, uh, I guess, from a Washington, D.C. court for, um, let's see, two women who were voter poll workers. Uh, Unbelievable what this is about. So we're going to talk some more. We had Pam Bondi on and we're going to bring back Will Scharf from the TV show last night. Will Scharf is a former federal prosecutor. He's a candidate for attorney general in the great state of Missouri, and um, went to Harvard and Princeton. <laughs> well, I couldn't get into Harvard, but I did go to Princeton. <laughs> Harvard well, and Princeton. I, I don't
7: know anyone who'd want to go to Harvard <laughs> these days, Larry. I mean, that place is
8: woker than woke, and it seems to just keep getting worse.
2: That's <laughs> great, great. I had that on the sheet from Susan Varga. You got a thought about this Giuliani thing? One hundred forty eight million in damages? Really? (laughs) I mean, come on!
7: It's so crazy, Larry, that you got to figure it gets reversed on appeal. I haven't been following kind of the minute by minute on that case, uh, but it seems like a pretty straightforward uh, defamation type claim. I think Rudy had, you know, some pretty strong defenses, but when you're in front of a hostile judge in a jurisdiction with a hostile jury pool, that's the kind of crazy decision you can get. Uh, It's similar, I think, to the fear that some people have about, uh, you know, President Trump potentially going to trial in Washington, Mm. D.C., similar to what we've seen with all these January 6th cases, uh, those that have been tried to uh, a jury in Washington, D.C. It's a real problem.
2: Yeah, it is a real problem. And it's this whole business about the two-tiered justice system that we've learned Uh, You know, let's go to the I don't know if you read the journal today, the big editorial, the lead editorial, Jack Smith and the Supreme Court. But it raises something that you were talking about last night on the TV show, and that is the outer perimeter of what a president's executive authority and executive privilege permits. Uh, Will Scharf, what does that mean in in lay terms? Help us through. defining outer perimeter.
7: So the the Supreme Court held in a case it's Nixon v. Fitzgerald. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's the key case on civil immunity uh, for for presidents, um, that a president was immune from suit, from anything falling, even within the outer perimeter of their official responsibilities. So even if the president isn't, you know, signing a bill or ordering the military to do something, if it's related, if it's sort of reasonably within what you expect presidents to do, uh, a president is immune from suit uh, for actions that he takes in that context. Uh, our view, President Trump's view, is that uh, criminal immunity should similarly apply, that he can't be prosecuted uh, for acts like that. And that's really what we're talking about in the in the D.C. case and in the Georgia case as well. Uh, things like asking the Department of Justice to investigate election fraud, uh, calling members of Congress or calling state officials about election fraud. The president has a responsibility under Article 2 to take care and enforce the laws of the United States and and federal election laws squarely within that.
2: And would that include, uh, and this could be a twofer, giving a speech on January 6th um, seems to me that's, part of his outer limb, outer perimeter, but it's also part of the First Amendment free speech, isn't it?
7: I think that's right. And the courts have consistently held that uh, presidents speak on issues of public concern, that that's part of their presidential duties. Uh, So it's, you know, this is an issue that's going to be litigated in the courts. But I think President Trump had an absolute First Amendment right uh, to communicate his views to the people of the United States. And I think that in, in many instances, in many contexts, those sorts of speeches would fall within the outer perimeter of, of his presidential duties and responsibilities,
2: at least. So what is, I don't even understand, then, apart from the obvious left-wing biases uh, of the Justice Department and the Biden administration, uh, what is uh, Jack Smith's point here? I mean, what does he think he's? where does he think he's going to win or convict Uh, Former President Trump.
7: So the the Wall Street Journal editorial this morning, I think, was right on that the deeper we get into this case, it it seems like the timing is the point that there's this rush to get President Trump on trial Mm. uh, before the election. But that's just not how cases are supposed to proceed. You know, cases are supposed to be about, you know, enforcing the rule of law, about giving the defendant their constitutional due process. And arriving at a fair and just result, uh, not railroading somebody on a, on a political timeline. And, and that's really the problem with particularly this D.C. case. I mean, this is a very, very complicated case. Millions and millions of pages of discovery, potentially hundreds of witnesses. Mm. And they're trying to try the thing, you know, six months after uh, after indictment. It doesn't fly. It doesn't mesh with the way these sorts of cases would would ever usually progress through the courts.
2: So in that event, uh, with that view, Jack Smiths made probably an even bigger mistake letting the Supremes take over because it's going that they're going to take forever.
7: So, so Jack Smith is trying to short, circ, short circuit the normal appellate process. Mm. President Trump and I think you know I'm I'm repre- I'm one of President Trump's lawyers. Uh, President Trump filed a motion to dismiss. Uh, the charges in D.C. on presidential immunity grounds. The district court rejected that motion. Uh, That motion is now up on appeal to the D.C. Circuit. And Smith filed uh, essentially an end run around D.C. Circuit review. He's trying to go straight to the Supreme Court. Uh, It won't work. The effect effect of that would be uh, drastically shortening the usual appellate process. There's... Trying to get
2: this March right. file date to stick. Out of time. Will Sharp. Sorry, Larry. That's all right, buddy. Thank you. From Wall Street
1: to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show.
2: Back. I'm Larry Kudlow, and we're going to revisit this um, all these big events in the financial markets with market speculation that the Federal Reserve is throwing in the towel on inflation and they're going to start slashing their policy target rates. Well, wait a minute. There may not be unanimity inside the central bank about that. And anyway, what's the Fed afraid of? And anyway, what's a little deflation after three years of inflation with the CPI up 17%? So let's bring in our great expert, John Carney, Uh, co-author of the Breitbart Business Digest, which is a must-read every day. John, uh, so I want to pick up from the stuff we did on the TV show, but there's new news now. Um, After this frenzy that the Fed is going to cut three times, but the market now says seven times, uh, a couple of Fed presidents, one of them is quite powerful, uh, John Williams, the president of the New York Fed, which is my alma mater. He's a pretty smart guy, sort of a conservative Keynesian, but also, as you probably saw, Atlanta Fed president Raphael Bostic said it's way too early to consider cutting rates as soon as March so wait, what I mean this whole business this the fed the Fed run rampant here. this is like something out of Joe Biden's playbook. I mean, what what are they doing? Yeah, no, I think what happened was they thought they were coming
8: to meet the market where the market was. The market had, you know, four uh, rate cuts for next year priced in. And the Fed said, you know, you know, like the Fed officials said, yeah, you know, some of them said four. The median came out to three. And so they thought, you know, yeah, we're we're about where the market is. The market immediately took that and was like, well, no. If they say three, it's going to be six or seven. Mm. And I don't. And I think they, the, frankly, that caught the Fed people off guard. Mm. They did not anticipate how the market was going to react. You know, stock market shot up the Russell two thousand. You know, which has not had a great year. You know, went up six percent in a day. <laughs> the you know the the ten year yield fell below four percent. Yeah. And I think now they're they're regretting a little bit both what the dot plot did and uh what Jay powell did uh he didn't sound you know he sounded not at all hawkish not at all like he was trying to push back right. on the market anticipation right. and so I think I think that caught them off guard and now they're trying to take it away but it's too late I mean nobody believed you know when John Williams says no we're not really talking about uh cutting rates it nobody believed him it didn't make a difference on friday
2: when he said it you know i um this dot plot thing uh, now to our to our audience that's not familiar with the with the wall street lingo these are the internal estimates of the let's see there's 12 fed presidents reserve bank presidents around the country um and then they've got but they
8: actually let some of the non voting participants they'
2: uh, they're in there too, put in yeah right exactly. so, so they're all in there with their estimates, and then you've got members of the governor, board of governors, but the, John, what are those estimates worth i mean how they how have they done the last bunch of years?
8: That's oh, good. not very well, so <laughs> actually, what's really funny is if you look back a year ago, all the numbers are wrong, yeah. Right. The where the Fed said where we'd be now, mm. because, they're you know, they're projecting at the end of the year each year. So I'd like to look back. All the numbers are wrong, but they did get one thing right. They got the Fed funds number more or less right. Huh. I think they were a little bit lower than we are right now. So they said five point one percent. We're at five four. Mm. Uh, so they were pretty close on that one. But all the other numbers, they thought unemployment would be much higher than it is. They thought GDP growth would be much lower. You know, so they so they were wrong. Mm. Um People, the the one number that's probably worth paying attention to maybe the Fed's projection of where they think the Fed funds rate is going to be because that's something they actually control. Mm. But I think the other thing to keep in mind when when we talk about these numbers is that these aren't the numbers coming from the internal economists at the Fed. Mm. Uh, it's oh. not the, you know the thousands of people. Right. It's the Fed officials, the top guys. Who listen to their guys. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not just making these numbers off the top of their head, but and they don't actually debate it with each other. Even Mm. these these dots are composed of, you know, the guys say, yeah, I think we're going to be at five point, you know, (laughs) four point six percent next year. And then you average those numbers. So Powell does point out, like, we probably make too much of the dot plot. But frankly, that's also the fence fault. Like if they think we're making too much of it, they should stop doing. Exactly.
2: Stop publishing the damn thing. It doesn't have it doesn't have any significance. Plus, it's always wrong. Uh, (laughs) Plus, you're saying they don't even I mean, they do listen to their research directors, but that doesn't mean they're going to do what the research directors necessarily recommend. I know a little bit.
8: I would love a dot plot from them, by the way. That's who I want the dot plot to come from, from the research directors on each of the
2: federal banks. Yeah. No, They're
8: that's – yeah. you can do it just regionally. John, you know, like
2: if, I, yeah. wor- I worked at the New York Fed, okay, just about – I don't know. When's 1973? Is that 50 years ago or something? 50 I can, years. I can't even do the math. It was the first job I ever had, and I worked in open market operations, and I was part of the research arm of open market operations. They had their own research arm, not the research department. But, you know, none of this was around in those days. None of it. Right. Uh, And uh, Al Hayes was the president of the New York Fed. Then Paul Volcker was the president of the New York Fed. Arthur Burns was the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board. And then, as we know, Volcker became chairman of the Federal Reserve. I actually had the same job Volcker had in the early 50s. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. No, it's a kind of an interesting spot. That Uh, was when people didn't even know if the Fed was easing or tightening at any given point. You had to guess by
8: market movement.
2: That's right. That's just where I was going, John. They never publicly talked about any of this stuff, ever. And um, that's how far – and Volcker very much opposed any discussions. You know, he'd appear in Congress and, you know, he would – Well, Arthur Burns would smoke a pipe and Volcker would smoke cigars and they blew smoke at the at the at the senators and House members. But they wouldn't give up anything. And I think, you know, this new system of so-called transparency, John, I think it's done more harm than good. I really do. I just I I I
8: think actually the, the economists at the Federal Reserve should do a study do the press conferences and the dot plots and you, all, all of the, the Fed speakers that we have coming out all the time now wow. uh, has that improved things at all? Because I'm with you; I don't see the evidence that the Fed performed better. Remember, this is the first test we've had of the Fed. Mm. You know, forget about like financial crisis. Like, yes, yeah, that's a whole different thing. But of the, the Fed's anti inflation mandate. This is the first test we've had of it, and they flunked it. So Mm. is communication better? Mm. I'm not sure. Maybe it's better for some things than others, but it doesn't seem to have worked in uh, terms of helping the Fed fight inflation.
2: So the other question is, what's the Fed afraid of? Which you were talking about with me in the air on the TV show. Uh, In other words, they have not gotten back to their 2% target. Now, I know the trends are okay, but the level of prices still continues to go up, although more slowly. And it is up close to 20 percent over the past three years, 17 percent with energy and groceries up a lot more. I mean, what's wrong with a little bit of deflation? In other words, why does the Fed feel it has to rush in, John, and start slashing their interest rates?
8: Yeah, I think this they they are making a serious mistake by saying, OK, now we're done. I, I actually think that the Fed has really underestimated a lot of big changes that are going on in the world. We have, you know, if you look back in the pre-pandemic world, we had less conflict. Uh, prior to Donald Trump coming into office, we actually had, you know, increasing globalization mm. that you know there were a lot of problems with increasing globalization but it was a deflationary force in the world it was pushing down mm. prices now we have reshoring friend sharing that's inflationary we have wars you know in israel mm. ukraine russia you know brewing conflict in you know with china between all over the place those are all inflationary factors we have an aging population in the us so i think the fed thinks it can easily get back to a world where 2% is just the, you know, the de facto rate that's going to happen. And I think they're wrong about that. I think actually we're three or three to 4% is probably where Mm. the, where we would be if the Fed had what, you know, stays what they used to think of as neutral, but now will be more accommodative. In other words, interest rates have to be higher. To get us down to two percent, than they had to be, you know, for the decade or two before that. And I don't think they've adjusted their view on this. So they're in a rush. They think five percent is really, really restrictive and is going to choke the economy. I, don't, you know, me, uh, Jim Bianco has also talked about this. I think that they're wrong on this, mm. and that five uh, percent mm. isn't that restrictive. Right. In the economy, and right now we're seeing we grew at five percent. In the third quarter, yep. with 5.25% uh, Fed funds rate. And people, the economy.
2: people don't see it. I mean, there's lower inflation. I'll give you an example. Here in the radio studio, so we bought; uh, they bought a box of donuts and a bunch of coffee because I'm broadcasting from the studio today, not up in Connecticut. <laughs> so uh, last winter, that whole package cost 60 bucks, you know, I buy it donuts for the whole staff and a big pot of coffee cost 60 bucks and my producer informs me today that the same box and the same bucket of coffee now costs 75 bucks this is dunkin donuts from 60 to 75 now that's what real people worry about and gasoline and and groceries and you you still see you go out to eat. I took
8: my brother out to dinner last night. And, yep. you know, the things that you you know, things, I won't say they're twice as expensive, but they're 30% more yeah. on a menu yeah. than, you're, than you're used to. And I think that is going to continue to be a problem for people. It's going to, because, you know, the, the, here's one way I put it. We had five years of inflation in one year, and we had that for two years. So it's going <laughs> right. to take a right. decade. right. For us to become adjusted to these
2: prices, I I gotta go, but I'm telling you, Dunkin' Donuts for the radio staff, seventy five bucks this year, sixty bucks last year. Okay, well That's you're getting
8: a- more generous over time. That's what's happening, right?
2: <laughs> I don't I don't think the donuts are any bigger. I don't know. I, I, <laughs> my producer's shaking they're his head. No, smaller. they're not. Probably
8: they're smaller. probably smaller. Probably
2: ten and there's fewer chocolate sprinkles on them. <laughs> John Carney, everybody. A cold following. You got to read this. The Breitbart Business Digest. It's out every single day, and he's a regular on our Cudlow uh, show on Fox Business. Thank you, John. Folks, we're going to take a quick break and then uh, bring in uh, the great Joe Concha, who's going to talk a little politics with me. I'm Cudlow. Dunkin' Donuts. Seventy-five bucks it was only sixty last year. Go figure. There's still inflation. We'll be right back.
1: Larry Cudlow. Now back to the Larry Kudlow show.
2: Welcome back everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. And we're going to talk a little politics. Or a little median politics, I don't know. We got the very smart Joe Concha, columnist at the Messenger, Fox News contributor, actually contributor to the to the Kudlow show on Fox. And I'm going to say, I'm going to read the whole title, author of Come On, Man, The Truth About Biden's No Good, Horrible, Very Bad Presidency and How to Return America to Greatness. Hey, Joe, thank you for doing this.
3: This is huge. I'm a Larry Kudlow contributor on top of a Fox News contributor. I mean, that's
2: that's it's a double whammy right there. It's a double, you know. And uh, I'll take a double. Our, our, <laughs> our ratings are double, but let's not go there. So You're number Joe, one, aren't you?
3: Is that, is that that's I, I see the numbers every week, and you and are business. number one, not just on Fox, but in, but in uh, yep. business television yep. in
2: general. Congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you, buddy. I appreciate it. Anyway, uh, Joe, give me your – just off the top of your head, I'm looking – I'm here in the studio in New York, and um, there's a lot of political stuff, uh, stories being covered. Iowa is – what, the Iowa caucuses less than a month? And then oh, New, yeah. New Hampshire pops up the next week or some such thing. What what's happening on the GOP side? Trump's got fabulous numbers. We know that, uh, but are those numbers going to hold? Is there any weakness in those numbers? You're watching this and the coverage of this, and you're writing about it. What's the what's the Joe Concha gut reaction? To Iowa, Iowa going to play a big part, and I will have some rebound to New Hampshire. How do you see it, Joe?
3: Well, well, there you have the governor in Reynolds who endorsed DeSantis, mm-hmm. and you have evangelicals also behind DeSantis. So I'm not sure Trump is up thirty or forty in that state. Is he up? Yeah, I, I believe that. Mm-hmm. But I look at precedent, Larry, and he was up in the polls in December. If you go back and look in December of 2015 ahead of all those other GOP candidates like Marco Rubio and John Kasich and Ted Cruz. And Cruz ended up winning Iowa. People forget that. Now, did it mean anything? No. Trump still went on to become president. But I don't think it's going to be the blowout that people believe it is. And as long as DeSantis or Haley, but more, and more likely DeSantis, finishes within some striking distance, and Trump doesn't have the blowout that people expect, he covers the spread, in other words, I guess is one way to put it, if DeSantis does that, then that, that's a chink in the Trump armor. But ultimately, I still can't see secretariat blowing the lead at this point on the backstretch of Belmont, and Trump is secretariat.
2: Uh, well, you, of course, you have to think Trump should lower expectations. Because if he thinks, you know, if, he, if the poll says he's up 40, and he, let's say he wins by 20, the media is going to say that's a loss. So he should start worrying about the expectations game. I, I'm not a political advisor to Trump. I mean, I obviously, uh, I'm biased towards Trump, but he and I talk economics. We don't talk politics. So I'm just having fun with you. You're more the political guy. What about uh, – what are the chances in New Hampshire – I was just seeing a Fox segment on that. Um, Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley – that's right right. I'm a dog person. It's Okay.
3: <laughs> That's Maximus.
2: Maximus, he says, yep. Hello, buddy. Um, <laughs> you know what? What about the Nikki Haley stuff? The Wall Street Journal editorial page is now really pushing Nikki Haley. How do you see that?
3: Well, Haley is the favorite of a lot of folks that are considered establishment, and the people that are anti-establishment most are Trump voters. So you're trying to peel off people by a, coming across as more of a mainstream establishment candidate and that's just not going to work here as far as uh, this nomination is concerned uh look there's one poll that does stand out that haley can tout and i believe it was wall street journal and it shows trump beating biden by four points Mm -hmm. in a national national scale same poll shows haley beating biden by 17 Mm -hmm. points so she could go with the whole i'm more electable look at this i could blow out joe biden donald trump squeaks by I suppose that's an argument, but she seems to be putting more of her chips in the center of the table for New Hampshire while DeSantis is doing the same with Iowa. So if she doesn't do well in New Hampshire, which could be a very unpredictable state in its own right, uh, then I would hope for the good of country, right, and for the good of the party as well, that Haley, DeSantis, Christie, whoever else is left – drop out and coalesce behind Trump. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that, that, that's the only way they, they beat Biden ultimately, I think.
2: You know, I was asking last night on the TV show, Molly Hemingway, who's a very smart woman, and I asked her this question about the Wall Street Journal editorial with 17 points ahead by Nikki Haley. I said, well, said, well, it doesn't matter because she's not going to be the nominee. <laughs> <laughs> Molly's not only smart. She's very candid. I know. It was very good. I thought that was a very, very good answer. Now, on the Biden side, um, still the question is, is it going to be Biden? The way you see it. And again, we're we're coming into the le- heavy duty election period. More and more people, including David Axelrod. uh, Obama advisor, former Obama advisor, saying no, no, don't do it. We need somebody else. So what, what? What's going to happen there? How do you see that?
3: Axelrod does not make the statements he has on national television publicly as often as he has, unless he cleared it with his former boss. Yeah, I, I gotta believe that that's really Obama talking, right? Remember, Obama didn't even want Biden to run in 2020. Didn't want him to run in 2016. Wanted Hillary because he wanted to be the first Black president, handing off to the first female president. Wow, look at that legacy! And then 2020, he didn't want him to run as well. And the famous quote from Obama reportedly said that never underestimate Joe Biden's ability to f things up. And that's the first line in my book, actually, that you mentioned before. And thank you for that. Uh, so all of that said, I I keep going back and forth on this, where Biden can't possibly be the nominee mm. when you see that he is heveraging support among black voters among young voters among female voters among independent voters among Hispanic voters all these people that got him over the finish line last time barely by the way if you mm. look at state by state mm. he loses them he loses the election the problem is I don't know who's coming out of the bullpen because Mariana Rivera is not there on the Democratic side right.
2: and they okay? wouldn't so, they wouldn't even let Mariana you know, play I mean they won't point. let anybody in I gotta go Joe I'm sorry about it I think you're I don't know. I think it's going to be Biden v. Trump. Joe Concha, everybody. Joe Concha, messenger, Fox News contributor. Come on, man. The truth about Biden's no good, horrible, very bad presidency. (laughs) That's a great line. I'm cut low. Stock market next.
1: It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow.
2: Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. Great pleasure to be with you today. Join us during the week on Fox Business Network, FBN. name of the show's is Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday. And if you can't make it at 4, just text your favorite 9-year-old and she'll show you how to DVR the show. And here on the radio, you can get us on the Internet, live stream us on the Internet, LarryKudlowShow.com, larrycudlowshow.com, broadcasting throughout the country, around the world, throughout the solar system, including the Milky Way, whatever that is. And we're going to talk stocks. Oh, my gosh. The Dow Jones up 1,057 points for the week. 1,057 points for the week. And I believe it's a new record high, 37,305.16. And the other indexes had huge gains also, almost 3% for the NASDAQ, 2.5% for the S&P 500. Small cap stocks took off. The S&P 600 up 7%. The Russell 2000 up 5.5%. A big week, and it's been a big bunch of weeks for stocks. The Cudlow Trust is doing very well. And why is it doing well? Because the Cuddle trust is always long the S&P index. It does not try to actively manage it. It just stays there. And it pays off over time, as my former Princeton professor, Bert Malkiel, has argued for 50 years. Anyway, let's talk about this business of the rally in stocks. We've got Nancy Tengler, CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Laffer-Tengler Investments. Her book is The Women's Guide to Successful Investing. And we have Pete Najarian, co-founder of Market Rebellion and Option Monster. So you guys may not agree with this. I understand. But we had Kevin O'Leary. Mr. Wonderful was on the TV show yesterday. And he said, You can't outtime the market. Who would have thought we'd have had a rally like we've had? I mean, maybe some people, yes, other people no. Who would have thought we'd be up a thousand bucks? Who would have thought that the Federal Reserve is going to throw in the towel and say, Well, it's okay, we've just triumphed over inflation, we're gonna cut interest rates three times next year, four times next year, and then the market says, No, you're gonna cut it seven times next year. I don't know. It's all crazy stuff. All I know is we just did very well the last few weeks. So I'll go to Nancy Tengler first. I don't like to time the market, Nancy. I don't. You can have you know you bat an eye and you miss a thousand points. If you took a snooze, if you took a snooze, if you went to the restroom, you would miss a thousand points. I mean, come on, it's unbelievable.
0: Well, <laughs> um, yeah, so I actually write about that in my book, Larry. Thanks for mentioning it. Um, it's time in the market, not timing the market. Couldn't agree more. Um, I think, you know, we wrote a piece, and I talked about it on your show in early November, that we thought we were going to see a rally, and that wasn't that original. But um, we got one, and, the you know, the, the big rally came in the NASDAQ, and, you know, we're we're overweight technology. Um, but I I will take exception with – Indexing, even though I know I know that about you, and we've talked about it in the past. I think you can add value above the index, and I think this is one of those environments where owning the right stocks is going to matter a whole heap. Um, our equity strategies are all outperforming their their benchmarks dramatically, and um, that, that's not always the case, to be sure. But um, investing is about being mostly right, which used to frustrate the hell out of the engineers I manage money for at Bechtel. Hey, we can't build a bridge by being almost mostly right.
2: Nancy. um, Nancy, when I was a child, when when I was a child, I went to work for Ronald Reagan. I was his OMB budget deputy, okay? I was was 13 years old. (laughs) That was. (laughs) I wasn't born. That was, let me see, 1980. So uh, 20 years. To two thousand, so that's forty over forty years ago. The mm-hmm. the Dow was slightly under a thousand. Okay, oh, a yeah. thousand. So if I had the wherewithal to own the S and P five hundred, it would be forty seven nineteen. The Dow is thirty seven thousand three hundred five. I don't even know how many. I don't know, Pete and Jerry. Maybe you know how, how many. How, how many times is that increase from from under a thousand to thirty seven thousand? What is that? Yeah. Huh? That, that? That's a big number, Larry. That's it, all it, we have to say. That's right. That's a big number. I'm just saying. Pull out your HP 12C. It, it's, this is so it's so good that all the money that we mm-hmm. had to spend and lose and dip into our savings to work in the government for Trump for three years, we're almost back to even on that because of the stock market all right and and i'm and i'm not a bull because i'm not a biden guy and i don't know what the fed is doing half the time nowadays it's so it's so crazy all i know is we held on to the index and look at it look at it Mm -hmm. that's all i'm saying i mean i i know you could add value uh and i know some managers are smarter than i get all that but i gotta tell you you bat an eye and you missed a thousand points this week. I mean it's really something. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. yeah. Jump in, Pete. Come on. You well, you've been at this for a long time also.
9: Yeah, I, I have. And and generally, you know, guys, um I agree with everything you're talking about. Uh, although I do tend to be far more of a trader than than what you guys are, are discussing. Although, you know, from an investment standpoint, um, you know, I just have to read what's in front of us, and and that gives me the best view of the markets. And what I mean by that is we've been hearing from Powell for quite a long time, guys, and we know essentially what exactly he's going to be doing in every single – all you've got to do is look at that CME tool of, of this whole thing, and you can figure out, okay, 98% chance we were going to pause again. And I think when you look at what the Fed has been doing and the transparency that he has given us uh, – you know, you can look at that inflation data and, and you look and you see it coming down from 9% all the way down to 3%. The goal of 2% is not that far away now. So there's a lot of different elements to that whole thing that gives you other areas within the market. I agree with you guys on the S&P. And by the way, I would tell you, in the, in the derivatives markets where I spend my time, there is massive option trading within the spiders. And mm. it's been bullish for a while. As mm. a matter of fact, since de- December 1st, they have been going absolutely crazy in there and and the derivatives markets guys just just so everybody understands the option markets in other words that I'm, that I'm talking about here the volumes used to be it was 20 million per day back in 2018 2022 we were 41 million this year we're averaging 44 million and this week we had two days over 55 million contracts one of those days was 70 million so mm-hmm. that is where people are and it's because if you go back to the financial crisis, where do you get leverage? Because they removed leverage. Well, you get leverage in the derivatives markets. And it has been massive. And it's been very telling in terms of where do we want to look? You look at places like the SMH. Now, the spider is great. But you look at something like the semiconductor index, take a look at what that performance looks like just year to date. (laughs) You'll be shocked because you probably don't even realize. I mean, a lot of people don't. But you know, everybody wants to go to the triple Qs because of the Magnificent Seven and everything else, and that's 43% of the triple Qs. The SMH has been absolutely rocking. And and, and now, this past week, we were seeing a lot going on in the transportation world because of what's going on with, with crude. And take a look at something like, you know, another ETF, but JET, J-E-T-S had another great week and and it's there's just a lot of reason i think the read through gives us the opportunity we can still be long the spiders we can still be long the dow we can still be long other things but there are specific areas that i think at time do give you well, a better bang for your buck like the financials did this past week
2: well okay so this mm-hmm. uh, in my sheets the socks index is, mm-hmm. that, is that close to what you're talking about it's very sim- similar, right. yes. So yep. the SOX Index was up nine point one percent, and for the year to date, it's up sixty two point six percent, which is unbelievable. And mm-hmm. and I'm looking also, home builders, despite mortgage rates, yeah, home builders mm-hmm. last week. Well, mortgage rates have come down, but they're up seventy one percent for the year, which is unbelievable. Now you mentioned energy, Pete. Uh, mm-hmm. Not so now energy. You know, Brent crude 76.80. All right, so Brent was up 1.3%, but energy hasn't done well. It's down uh, almost 11% this year uh, on Brent. Right. Crude, mm-hmm. uh, cr- West Texas uh, also down 11%. So they're trading side by side. Now I'm looking okay. at the banks. KBW Bank Index up 8% for the week. Still down for the year, but up 8%. So, okay, you can throw darts at a board. So some, mm-hmm. some circles will do better than others. But still, um, I don't know. I, I just think there's a, a lesson here. I don't want to put you guys out of business, but uh, <laughs> I'm just going to tell you, uh, you can't time it. You It's really hard. Now, let me add, Nancy, uh, bond rates led the Fed. So the 10 years has been falling, uh, what, for a month now? Basically, mm-hmm. from from five to four, it's actually under four, uh, 391 as of the close yesterday. It got to, what, 505, 510.
8: Mm-hmm. Now,
2: now, that's, Nancy Tengler, that's, um, that's a hell of a move. And that preceded Jay Powell and all his malarkey on Wednesday. So, in a sense, that was the signal, wasn't it, for the stock market?
0: Yeah, and I and I think also the dollar falling was was an, an indication.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh. I
0: have argued that 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 the market has stopped listening to the Fed, and I know there's been a lot of consternation that you know that there's seven cuts priced in versus what the <laughs> Fed uh, said in their step of three or the and the dot plot. I mean, just go back and look at the dot plot from uh, September of 2020, and they had us at about one percent in Fed funds rate uh, currently. Two uh, percent next year. So they're always wrong, and I think what I think Pete's absolutely right. The market has sniffed out that that inflation is declining, and yes, it is sticky. But um, you know the, the Fed's met metric, which is not the Larry Kudlow metric. I'm sorry, I'm sorry that didn't catch on. I really like it. <laughs> <laughs> Only food and energy, but right. theirs is the core PCE deflator, right. and it's, If you look at it three months backwards, annualized, it's at two percent. So I, I think what, what we heard was they're finally, you know, they're data dependent. They're looking backwards. The market already sort of figured that out. I mean, November was a hell of a year, right, for stocks. And and then we've got December. So I, I think one of the things that people are also missing is that when rates come down, um, that is going to push uh, and historically has moved money out of money market funds and into equities. And we're just starting to see the equity flows pick up. So I'm not saying it's a moonshot from here. I think we get some volatility, but there are places to be. And, um, you know, just, just as an example, uh, to, to Pete's point, you don't have to own NVIDIA to have had enjoyable performance this year. We own what I call the poor man's NVIDIA, which is uh, Broadcom. It's up 110%. Mm. So the the, <laughs> the indexes that you both cited were pulled down by Intel and Texas Instruments, among others. Well, Intel's a terrible
2: in- company. That, it's a terrible company. <laughs> it yeah, is. It's I an mean, awful company. That guy running is Broadcom's a good company. NVIDIA's a good – by the way, Jim Kramer, my pal Jim Kramer's dog is named NVIDIA. <laughs> I just want to put that in there. <laughs> That's great. But into, Intel, that guy's running into the ground. It's a stupid company. But I yeah, want to just say one reason. thing. Before we take a break, uh, I, I know the inflation rate has come down. But the level of prices. Absolutely. All right. The CPI is up 16.7% since February of 2021. Uh, Groceries, food at home is up 20%. Energy is overall up 29.9%, call it 30%. And gasoline, which is down at the pump, uh, let's say from five bucks to almost three bucks, but it's still up 34 percent. I mean, three Christmases ago, uh, gasoline was under two dollars. So I'm just saying, I,
0: look at and donuts.
2: All right. So you listening to the show. I'm glad you're listening to the show. <laughs> I, I need every viewer I can get on Saturday, particularly during the holidays. Every listener. But it's true. It's true. our producer, Kevin Drosch. By, he knew, I called him last night to say I'd be in studio broadcasting today. So we went out. We have a Dunkin' Donuts drill. We went out and gets a big box of donuts and a big pot of coffee so we could – everybody on the weekend shift. A year ago, it was 60 bucks. Today, it was 75 Okay? 75 That's a 25% increase in uh, Dunkin' Donuts. So I don't know why the Fed f- feels like it has to start easing here based on some academic theory – Uh, or the year-to-year change in the inflation rate, which means nothing to ordinary people because they pay individual prices. I mean, it's a serious question. i got to take a break. We'll take a break and come back. I just – I mean, it's almost like the Fed is panicking. I mean, the market may be panicking, but the Fed is panicking. And I don't know why the Fed is panicking. So we'll come back and revisit that. We have Nancy Tengler, Laffer Tengler Investments, and her book is called The Women's Guide to Successful Investing. And uh, my old pal Pete Najarian, co-founder of Market uh, Rebellion and Option Monster uh, from CNBC days. I'm still Cudlow, and the Dunkin' Donuts coffee is fine. By the way, I'm not knocking the coffee. I'm just saying, up twenty five percent. You got to ask, how good is it really? We'll be right back. This
1: this. is the Larry Cudlow Show. Now back to the Larry Kudlow show.
2: Welcome back, folks. So we had so much fun in the uh, elongated first part. We only have two minutes with Nancy Tangler and Pete and Jerry. Let's give uh, from here, Nancy. Give me a minute, and Pete and Jerry are the same. From here, what do we do?
0: Um, <laughs> pray. Uh, I think uh, uh, yes uh. <laughs> I think a couple of things i mean i one of the things that's coming back, and i 'll be very quick so Pete can can opine is that uh share buybacks are back, and uh you know corporate pension plans are have an insatiable appetite for bonds the, the companies are using them to buy share buybacks watch companies that are are buying back shares is putting a floor below the price. It oh. was that way in twenty twenty one it's likely to be the case in twenty twenty
2: two Um, I'm done. All right. That's interesting. Interesting point. Pete, what do you got?
9: Well, I think when when we talk about rates and we talk about lower rates, one of the things that stands out for me, look at the move we've had out of Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. And why is that? Well, because they make more money on deposits, and the deal pipeline looks like it's going to really start to, uh, I think, accelerate. So because of that, the financing costs will will be a little bit on the decline and borrowing money. This puts them in a very, very solid space, which is why I think Morgan Stanley, you look at the week, 82 to 92, Goldman Sachs, 350 to 380. That's why those stocks are moving in that direction, and I think that continues.
2: Interesting. Did low rates take the regional banks off the hook? I think it certainly helped. Easier.
9: And we've all forgotten about March already, right, of last year where we had the regional banking crisis. But, uh, you know, I haven't, you haven't, I know Nancy hasn't. So uh, it's something you always want to have in the back of your mind. But I think their position's much better now.
2: Pete Najarian, Market Rebellion and Option Monster, Nancy Tengler of Laffer Tengler Investments. Thanks, kids. Both of you, terrific stuff. Folks, a brief break. We're going to come back and do some money in politics with Monica Crowley and Steve Moore I'm Kudlow. Please stick with us.
1: From Wall Street to the
2: White House,
1: this is The Larry Kudlow Show.
2: Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow, and we're going to talk some money in politics. We have Steve Moore on the line. Freedom Works, Committee to unleash prosperity hotline, and his WABC radio show. More money follows this show on many of these very same stations, and uh, we have a APB out for Monica Crowley. Maybe we'll get her. Maybe we won't. She's become the Steve Moore of radio. Oh, wait a minute! <laughs> I shouldn't blow, say Larry. low blow. Steve Moore, welcome buddy. Uh a couple things Merry for Christmas, you. Christmas, Larry. And to you. Happy, holy mary Thank you very much, my friend. Um listen, Steve, we're still around, so we're having a good year. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so we're well, still, you're having a great year. You've still. got the number
10: one show wow. on all of business news. Yeah. That includes CNBC, Fox Business,
2: Bloomberg. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. You, you are
10: a superstar. So and
2: congratulations on a great year. Thank you. And you are a regular contributor <laughs> to that show, so it's a big plus. Um Steve, let me talk about a couple of things with you. Uh, there's a story out there about Elon Musk versus the Biden administration, the FCC, Federal Communications Commission, going after Elon Musk. Now they, the Bidens, hate Elon Musk because mm-hmm. he's a free speech advocate right. and he's a libertarian and so forth. Mm-hmm. So three to two decision, they're taking his. This is his uh, Starlink, which is very important because it it hits the boondocks it you know it it hits the rural areas Mm -hmm. and they had 885 Mm -hmm. million award and they taken it away Mm -hmm. and it's interesting um the republican commissioner who i know very well brendan carr Mm -hmm. said that this fits the biden administration's pattern of regulatory harassment Mm -hmm. why are they going after elon musk who was doing the lord's work why So you you if anything, you understated how sinister this is,
10: because all the Biden administration has been talking about for three years is we have to bring uh, broadband and, uh, you know, telecommunications to rural America. And they want billions and billions of taxpayer dollars to do it. And he's basically doing this for for, I mean, you know, not for free, but not charging the taxpayers anything. I mean, he should win an award for what he's doing. And uh, he should be celebrated for this. And look, I I don't always agree with everything Elon Musk does, but he's an incredible entrepreneur. I'm reading his book right now, the book Mm. about him right now, which is highly recommend as a uh, Christmas gift to people. If you want to know the uh, knowledge and the the brain power of this guy. Mm. So why do we, it gets to what we talked about last week. Why does the government feel like it has to cripple our
2: greatest entrepreneurs? I don't get it. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, he does he does a lot of work for the Defense Department. He just got a big defense contract. And by the way, this um, – the other thing I want to say about his Starlink system, his starling it's a satellite system for people yeah. that may not yeah. know. It's amazing. Um, it's a huge form of communications for the government of Ukraine mm. and uh, for those people that are worried about Ukraine. Here's another example. Now, the Biden administration says it wants all this money for Ukraine, but here they are – knocking down Elon Musk uh, and it's one of his key companies, um, which is helping in the Ukraine. Now, rumor has it that Monica Crowley has dropped by to chat (laughs) with us for a while. Um, Probably somebody had to, Pull her out of the bars in Southampton. I don't know where she was. (laughs) At 11
10: o'clock in the morning?
2: (laughs) Why not? You know, it's uh, Christmas holidays. For those who may not know the brilliance and beauty of Monica Crowley, who's a very old and dear friend of mine, she was a former assistant secretary of the Treasury and host of the Monica Crowley uh, podcast. And, you know, Monica, just to stay, I've got a bunch of things for you guys, but just to stay with this attack on Elon Musk, This is the Biden administration at its worst, using government levers to attack individuals and, as Steve Moore said, businesses.
11: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you'll notice that there are no other real big tech uh, titans who are under this kind of investigation by the federal government. Elon Musk, every single one of his businesses is under the microscope and under federal investigation. So that tells you that the Biden administration considers Musk an enemy, mm. an enemy of the state, an enemy all a political enemy, all because he bought Twitter and exposed the depths of their crimes and government censorship, and government weaponization. Remember, they never thought that Elon Musk would was serious about buying Twitter. They never thought it would go through. They tried to stop it. X. Twitter is the only at scale free speech platform in the world. Mm. And when he took it over with the Twitter files, he was exposing the depth of corruption on COVID, on uh, suppression of voices that were dissenting against the government. You name it. He was exposing all of their crimes and censorship regime. So he needs to be punished. And so what the Biden administration is doing is maximizing the full weaponization of government to punish their political adversaries, whether it's Elon Musk, Donald Trump, the January 6th nonviolent defendants. Uh, Anybody who crosses this administration, who crosses the system will be punished. These things are punishment in and of themselves, but they're also messaging events. Mm it's the is to you and me and Steve and the WABC audiences. Don't even think about it because if you do, if you stand up to power and call out abuses of power, we will destroy you the way we're trying to destroy Trump and Musk.
2: Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's really something. And they, they just love to go after Musk because of his free speech views. It's really something. Um, let me hit another topic, Steve Moore. Um, Harvard hates America. Now, America may hate Harvard, but Harvard hates America. And I don't want this story to to die. I talked to Grover Norquist about this earlier on the radio show, and Grover was on the TV show last night. So you have this situation, uh, these university presidents, Penn, MIT, Harvard, but you could throw them all in all these elite schools. Uh, They're not dealing with the anti-Semitism on their campuses, they're immersed with this DEI, uh, left-wing social, uh, woke social policy. On top of that, the president of Harvard, uh, Claudine Gay, uh, stuck with plagiarism charges. And it turns out that the um, that the uh, Harvard, knew Corpor- about it. Yeah. Yep, Harvard they, Corporation they covered it up, covered it up makes yeah. it even worse. Now, where I'm going with this, there's nothing I can do about the Harvard Corporation or Penn or any of these places, although they did get rid of their president, Penn. But Steve Moore, they don't pay any taxes. They get a lot of money. Uh, They have huge endowments. They virtually pay no taxes on that. Total tax rate is 1.4%. The top tax rate for successful earners is 37. Uh, The middle bracket's around 25%. So they pay 1.4 and if they you know buy and sell capital gains dividends yeah. and what have you they mm-hmm. have zero yeah. tax rate plus donors to Harvard and these other elite schools have a tax deduction for mm-hmm. the amount they've donated mm-hmm. now I think that should be changed. I can't change Harvard but we could make it a lot more costly for Harvard to practice the left-wing ways it's practicing instead of the free lunch they've got right now. And I'm hoping that Elise Stefanik and the Republicans take some action here. What do you think? So there's
10: a lot here to talk about. Let's just start with – the. I love the the title of the Wall Street Journal at – editorial the other day, which said America is getting a Harvard education. (laughs) Right. And I thought that was really well put. We are finally looking under the hood of these, of these, and it's not just Harvard, it's the Ivies, it's, Mm. it's Stanford, it's Northwestern, it's Duke, it's, Mm. you know, it's 80% of the universities are just factories for left-wing thinking. And so um, that's one thing that, that they're just, it's, it's a tragedy what's happened to these great, great universities. They, they, they have become indoctrination machines, and I don't know if Harvard can actually even recover from the hit that it's taken here. Mm-hmm. We'll see. The fact that they didn't have the courage to fire this wo- this woman mm-hmm. really just shows how cowed they are. And everyone knows she she was chosen for this because she just checks the the boxes, mm-hmm. right? She's gay, she's black, she's mm-hmm. a woman. Mm-hmm. She's not qualified for this. I had there's a great line by the way in the Wall Street Journal said, you know, she plagiarized in her. In her Ph.D. thesis, but nobody knew because nobody ever even read her Ph.D. thesis.
2: (laughs) (laughs) By the way, um, she plagiarized a very good friend of Art Laffer's, (laughs) this Carol Um, Swain from Bandit. Let me just quickly
10: get to the the point about – uh, the uh, the tax deductions and the massive uh, endowments of these universities. Um, this is the single biggest loophole in the tax system, Larry, huh. the single biggest one. Huh. And it goes to the top 1%. I wrote an article in the wall street journal five years ago. And it, by the way, it's worse. You get a double tax deduction. The donor gets a deduction from their taxes for the, for the um, you know mm-hmm. for the amount they give, and none of that unrealized capital gains ever gets taxed. Mm-hmm. Did you know that? Yep. So yep. Uh, you and I believe in low tax rates and a broad base. Let's broaden the base by taking that advantage away and lower the tax
2: rates for everybody else. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I like that. And Monica, on top of that, these schools get huge amounts of money from the federal government, grants. I mean. Five six $600 million, also from state and local governments. Now, it seems to me, at least Stefanik, who's looking at this, and they're going to have it continue their investigations, why is the federal government spending all this money on these elite universities who have a lot of money to start with? What the hell? I would, I mean, let's cut spending for a change.
11: Well, exactly right. I mean, why should a plumber in Indiana who is busting his butt seven days a week uh, to try to put food on the table and keep a roof over his family's head. Why should that plumber be paying his taxes and then some of that money is going to Harvard University to turn out left wing communist kids with with every passing year? That is fundamentally unfair. It's a similar analogy to the student loan, uh, quote unquote, forgiveness, mm-hmm. which is also a giant scam. You know, blue collar workers bust and tail every day and their tax money is going to subsidize the most elite. Radical leftist students, faculty, universities, administrations. No, no, no. Enough of that. By the way, you know, the left and the Democrats are always talking about how millionaires and billionaires and the quote unquote wealthy, which in their mind is anybody making over, what, $150,000 in America, that those wealthy folks don't pay their fair share. Well, here you've got the wealthiest universities yep. in the world yep. who are clearly not paying their fair share. Yep. Time to step up and actually uh, carry your weight, Harvard.
2: You know, even if we got the top tax rate down to 15 percent, I was talking to Grover Norquist about this. I said, Grover, if you're the Treasury Secretary, you get it down to 15 percent. Harvard and these schools are still paying 1.4 1. They're not even going to pay fifteen, so that's fair. And you know, let's cut government spending for a change. Let's start there. It's a very good, um, it's a very good spot. Anyway, let's um, let's take a break. We got Monica Crowley uh, from the Monica Crowley podcast, former Assistant Treasury Secretary Steve Moore's WABC Radio hosted more money. More money comes on most of these stations right after this show. We'll take a quick break. I'm Cudlow. Stay with us, folks.
1: Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show.
2: Welcome back, folks. We are talking with Monica Crowley of the Monica Crowley Podcast and former Assistant Treasury Secretary and Steve Moore of the WABC radio host More Money right after this show on most of these same stations. So I got one for you the last few moments here, this being the holiday season, Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, everything. Um, A tips poll, Investors Daily tips poll, which is a great poll. 1,378 adults. Belief in God. This is great. I want to see how you guys handle this one. Belief in God. Overall, Question is, do you believe in God? Overall, 77% of people believe in God. Now, that's a big number. That's a big number. And 18 to 24, 67%. Not bad. 25 to 44, 74%. 45 to 64, 80%. uh, 65 and above, 85%. Males, 76% of males believe in God. 78%. Seventy eight percent, I think. Seventy eight percent believe in God. So most people believe in God. I mean, you wouldn't know that by listening to uh, the media or the elite universities or any of that. But there's a lot of spirituality and religion left Mm -hmm. in America. Steve Moore, I know you're a regular mass goer. (laughs) I know you are. So you're going to fit in. I'm not bad. I'm not as good as you, but I'm not bad. By the way, 86 percent of conservatives, 82 percent of Republicans, Democrats, not quite as much. So what do you make of that, Steve Moore?
10: Well, this you know, this country was really based on a, a, a belief in God, and that's why so many people came here. Um, I worry that younger people, though uh, – those numbers are better than I thought for younger people mm. because one of the problems with our society that I'm really worried about is – Th- that in general, and this is maybe a little bit of an overgeneralization, but not much. That younger people compared to previous generations are less likely to believe in God than previous generations at the same age. Mm. They are less likely to want to have kids or get married, mm. um, and they uh, are less patriotic. Mm-hmm. They have, a, well, and and I really believe this gets to the schools. You know, mm-hmm. the schools are not. You know, the school system is really the reason we created a public school system was to. For, for young people to gain an appreciation and a knowledge about our country. And that just isn't happening in, in, in our schools today. And that's why I'm a giant advocate for school
2: choice. Yep. You know, Monica, on this point, I mean, the left, the left wants to take religion out of the schools. The left wants to take religion out of everything. And, you know, this country had a religious underpinning. Whatever it is you're practicing, people believe in a higher power. And the left hates that. And I think it's amazing. These numbers are as good as they are.
11: (laughs) Yeah, it is stunning because I expected it to be a little lower. Um, And we have seen other polls that show, you know, church going way down and Mm. sort of faith in, in God overall. But these are strong numbers. They're down from their height. You know, in the 1950s and 60s, it was probably around 90 percent of all Americans had some sort of faith in God or, or a higher being. Um, to Steve's point, this is absolutely correct. Decades of indoctrination of generation after generation of kids in like really being steeped in a secular approach to the world Um, And also, you know, the baby boomer generation that fell away from the churches, not taking their children to church or synagogue or some faith-based institution, having faith-based education, has resulted then in subsequent generations being less spiritual, less faith-based, less belief in God. Mm -hmm. So that's part of it. But it all gets to like this overall Marxist revolution that the country has been subjected to now for almost a century in communism, in Marxist theory, and every Marxist country has done this. One of the first things they do is ban God, mm. ban organized religion, ban worship mm. in public places, and it drove the churches underground. The reason that Marxists do that is because the state is mm-hmm. supposed to be what you worship, the state That's right. is God. So, the state is your god it 's your family it 's your community it 's your job it 's everything so in communism, the state doesn 't want to have to compete with anything else, namely a higher power, so they ban god that 's what the the base of what you have seen here, and we 're seeing the fallout of it but it 's good to know that uh, you know most Americans, the vast majority of Americans are overriding that kind of secular indoctrination. Well, I just wonder,
2: I mean, just on this, you know, I think uh, the left wants to undermine families. Yes, family and country. Right. And I think, you know, undermining God is very much a part of undermining families or undermining families is a way of undermining God. I mean, the country was founded on those principles, and In God we trust. In God we trust, you know, and we were endowed by our Creator, right? Mm-hmm. But the left—they don't agree with the Declaration of Independence, right? They—they they have a different sixteen, sixteen, nineteen. I mean, these crazy people—they don't. Yeah, they no, don't they're like at that.
11: war. They're, they're at war with the Constitution. They're at war with the Declaration. They're at war with free market economics. And it all at base is Marxism, so it's political Marxism, the takeover of all of our government institutions and the weaponization. Mm. It's economic Marxism, which you and Steve Moore talk about all the time. And it's cultural Marxism, in terms of the culture and the educational indoctrination it's all moving for the same objective which is to destroy the fundamental uh, pillars of this country and well, what's made us great and prosperous
2: 77% believe in god that's from this poll it's a very accurate poll so i think that's a pop. we're going to end the show on a positive <laughs> yeah. optimistic note we believe, folks i'm larry kudlow thanks for listening i will be back next weekend